really, if you don't feel like you have that knowledge, it's the motivation and initiative to reach out and get that support and get that training. And if you're not getting the answers you want, keep going higher and higher until you get it because it's your right. You know, it's your right to understand the process. Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the U.S. is sick and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. Today we're going to talk with somebody that I actually have been following on social media. So if you're on Instagram, you may have seen this man. It is the world's most okayest school psych. And I just love, love, love the posts and that he puts up. And not just because he's got great memes. That is a skill to find such good memes, but mm. mainly because of the content that he puts in those posts. And recently he put a post that was just very raw and and real about a parent expressing their frustration and, and their hardship, their heart pain about having a child that had disabilities. So I just really think that he speaks for an area of educators that don't get enough screen time for understanding from parents and from general public about what they do in the schools, and that is special service providers. And so we're talking with a friend of ours who is a school psych, and Shannon's going to introduce him today. All right, so today we are talking to Ryan Hogan, who, like Holly said, is a school psychologist. So Ryan, if you could introduce yourself, talk a little bit about what you do, where your passions lie, where your expertise are, and just share with the audience kind of anything you'd like about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Ryan, and I am a school psychologist. And you may not know, but up until May, we were licensed specialists in school psychology, LSSPs, and we just got the right to call ourselves school psychologists. Oh. So that's pretty cool. But anyway, so I've been in my current district. This is my fifth year. I've always been in DFW. Now I'm in the uh, North Tarrant area, closer to Fort Worth. Now, my passion going into the field was working with children with emotional behavioral difficulties anger issues, things like that. But then autism kind of got thrown at me. <laughs> so it, it's mentioned that I'm a professional and a parent. And so in 2010, my son was born. And then before he was three, he was diagnosed with autism. And that was a journey in itself. So that's obviously a passion of mine too now. Even on my page, I've been doing a lot of memes, a lot of school psych related stuff. I want to start doing more autism and related posts or uh, posts related to children with special needs because there are a lot of parents out there and even teachers that are just struggling with you know with it with, with, with how to manage it how to basically how to cope with the problems and difficulties and obstacles and everything that comes with it so and, and I just yeah I want people to feel seen heard, valued, things like that. So yeah, I mean, so that's really my passion is just the autism, but all around just the field of school psych in general. My stepsister 
growing up, uh, she has Down syndrome. So I was surrounded by children and uh, with special needs my whole life through her. And so I've always had that desire, that motivation to work with children, especially with with special needs. And I would want to do things like eat lunch with them, hang out with them. You know, they're fun, they're joyful and things like that. So that's always kind of been my passion. And then in college, I found out that if you go into school psychology, you get summers off. So <laughs> I was like, not yeah. a bad deal. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, it, it, it worked out. It worked out well. Well, Shannon and I are both also special service providers. I'm an occupational therapist and Shannon is a speech therapist. And we also love kids with disabilities. Yes. <laughs> and we love having our summers off. Yeah, that's yes. not bad. Now, now, some people don't take summers off. They do contract testing, do other jobs. No, I take my summers off. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we need it just to recoup. I I actually left education at the end of last year just for time's sake, for things that Shannon and I have been doing. I just needed one extra day and the district I work for wouldn't allow me to work four days a week. So I went back to contracting doing early intervention, but I sort of work with the kiddos and help guide them into the education system. And that's also a lot of fun. So I didn't get a single day off this summer because I... building my new my new uh, caseload but that's all right it's fun it and I fun. love working with my OTs and SLPs we I mean, had good school psychs when we were working in um, Durango together Shannon and I we had some really good school psychs one in particular we'll shout out is Sarah Brooks because she is just phenomenal such a such an important part of the team and I even make memes about I, I kind of make memes like just poking fun at each discipline. I target BCBAs the most, (laughs) but uh, with OTs, I made a meme like, you know, an IEP meeting is going to go long when an OT is reviewing an evaluation because they take so much time. They go into so much detail when reviewing their part of the evaluation and you know, it, it takes forever. <laughs> so yeah, that that's that was one of my OT memes. Perfect. I always feel bad because I will do try to do the cliff notes on mine and just not say everything that I did. I'll just be like this. That's rare. No one does that in in any meeting that I'm in. They just <laughs> very thorough. Well, you know, thorough can be good. It can also be painstaking. Yes. <laughs> or when you're sitting in meetings all day. Well, so we recently had a very cool guest, Dr. Michael Allen, and he used to be a principal in the Chicago area. Now Mm -hmm. he is like a coach to other administrators in education. And he was on our educational administration series, season three. And we were talking about one of the things that we hear a lot of teachers get upset about is I think we're seeing behaviors on the rise in classrooms for multiple reasons. That's a whole nother conversation. But When they send a kid into the administrator because of behaviors, this feeling that there's no response from the administrators. And he had such a lovely answer where he was talking about a real philosophical shift in education, hopefully happening from the top down. I don't know if this is happening nationwide, but this is the goal, I guess, with administrators to shift to a more restorative justice sort of thought process versus 
a punitive discipline. So in that, you have to assume that the child doesn't really understand why what they're doing is wrong and and the impact of what they're doing. Instead of assuming they know it, they just need to be punished. And so he was talking a little bit about that. And I think in your role as a school psych, this actually is really pertinent because when we have students with disabilities that are having really significant behaviors, when students with disabilities have behaviors that would be worthy of being suspended or potentially expelled, you're one of the people that has to come in to work with the team, the IEP team and the administration to help them understand how their disability impacts their behavior. Right. So I want to ask, do you think in your area, are you seeing this philosophical shift to restorative justice? Are you seeing people really want to better understand? I definitely am with the younger students, especially elementary. Not so much with like older kids, like eighth grade and up. <laughs> it seems to be still more punitive there. And and that's an issue. But I in the you know 15 plus years I've been in the field, I've seen a much more of a shift with the younger kids with that restorative justice. And that's great because to get them at that age to help them build skills, do problem solving, conflict resolution, understand their behaviors, being able to manage their feelings and emotions. I mean, that's the time to teach it. It's at that time. So it's definitely a positive. And I primarily for the last five years have worked with like elementary all the way to eighth grade. I was in the high school at one time and it was very draining. That was back 2011 to 2014. And there were, I I was in a ton of manifestation determination reviews, you know, determining if the disability if the behaviors and manifestation of the student's disability, and if it's, you know, and, and depending on how the meaning goes and the answer, you know, the student may be go to the alternative education center or not. But anyway, yeah. And so I, I, I find at the elementary level, at least in my experience, they're really starting to get that these kids are learning how to behave, how to manage their emotions. And, and really, there's even the state of Texas here really limit, put limits on the type of disciplines that you can do or consequences that are available for like students, I think about second grade and under, you know, they really limit things like alternative placement, suspensions and things like that. But at the same time, it's really frustrating for teachers. And sometimes teachers feel like they don't have support. And then when you do the special education referral process, that can take time too. So it it's really, it's still a work in progress, but I do believe in the restorative justice. And, you know, that is best practice and best long-term for the child. So I do talk to my colleagues at the high school level, and I I think there's a little bit more flexibility than there used to be, but they still have a ways to go with the older students. I I am glad to see that change at the elementary level, at least. (laughs) I feel like sometimes staff, maybe maybe not so much teachers, but other staff in the building, and then sometimes teachers look at restorative justice as, I don't know, kind of giving the kids an out, maybe, and not understanding why it's valuable, right? how it builds skills for the student. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? I mean, yeah. And you have to understand, like from a teacher's perspective, it can be very draining. It can be very exhausting. And then it's also hard for other children to understand that, you know, different kids need different things. So 
right. You know, the consequence for one kid may be different than the consequence for another kid. And then you start having parents call and things like that, you know, because the kid will go home and complain about a child hitting or a child acting up or, you know, being disruptive to the learning process. And it's, yeah. And so there's a lot to juggle there. Most teachers that I work with, especially at the elementary level, they're passionate. They want to help the child. And they, even after the child, let's say, has been evaluated and starts receiving the services they need, And if that's it, let's say that child is no longer in their class because that's not where the services are provided. They still want to check up on the child, follow up, see how they're doing. They have a heart for it. I've seen teachers and IEP meetings, you know, just cry because not only everything they've been through, but because they really have a heart for the child. So it just, it takes really that wraparound, you know, with the administrative school counselor you have like intervention counselors and then, you know, also bringing parents and then having parent training available, parent conferences available. So, yeah, it, it just depends on the the situation, but you want to bring in all the resources and supports that are available, um, especially to work with these children that come in, you know, off the street. <laughs> they don't have any eligibility or you know, they're not diagnosed with anything, but they have severe behaviors and they need to be addressed right. urgently. So don't you think there's a trend of change in how parents are managing behaviors and stuff with kids, even from very young, like generationally, it's very different yeah. how we address issues with our kids. And and I feel like in the education world, a lot of times those kids that are what we might call high flyers, like they just pop up a lot with behavior struggles. A lot of times those parents are having a hard time or are dealing with those situations at home in a very different way than we have traditionally seen. Mm -hmm. And so teachers have a hard time recruiting the parents to support what needs to happen in the school. Yes, no, that's true. And I, I mean, I can speak from a parent perspective too. And A lot of times when parents get home, they're exhausted from the day. And so there's not a lot of energy left to, you know, manage behaviors and feelings and things like that. You know, I I, I tend to start with these parents are doing their best and then go with, you know, how can we help them and how can we support them? You know, training do they need and then how accessible they are, you know, how motivated they are to work with us. You know, I look at all those factors. But yeah, I mean, you, you see more of a trend of the gentle parenting, maybe not as, you know, applying consequences the same way that I received as a Gen X slash millennial. I was born in 80. So I'm like right on the pretty much exennial, I guess I would say. There you go. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I acted up and the consequences were much different than what kids get now. So, but it really still goes back to skill building. You know, is a kid getting away with it? Are you talking about it? Are you that doing that collaborative problem solving process with the kid? You know, what happened? What led up to it? You know, like in, in school, you do a thank sheet, you know, and so what happened? What led up to it? What could you, what's, what could you have done differently? How are you feeling at the time? If that is something a kid is doing at school, we certainly need to provide all those things to the parent too. Like, this is how we're addressing this at school. 
and and then provide that those visuals those resources now whether the parent does it or not you know we can't control that but we can control what we're that the information we're giving them and what we're offering them to just to make sure there's more consistency and i think if you know there are more severe behaviors i would hope the communication is more frequent and consistent with that parent, you know, to, you to feel adjust. like in your district, they're creating those kinds of systems for educating the parents or providing resources to the parents or any kind of training. Yeah, I do. And they have parent trainings. Our district has been great about that. Special education side has parent nights and then district wide, they have parent trainings. And then there's additional parent trainings at Title I campuses. Now, I, I, I will say though, that, you know, unfortunately, I see this in my previous district in here, and I think it's this way everywhere, is there's not a lot of consistency sometimes across campuses. Right. So, and, and I see that with my own child, that I get, you know, one year I'll have a teacher that's great at communicating. She'll send home social stories and visual supports, and, you know, she'll text us on the Remind app, things like that. And then another year, I'll have a teacher that I never hear from. You know, so so it's just different. But, you know, for example, last year, my son's teacher, you know, got him involved in a school play, had him do a science fair project. He can't stand there and explain what he did. So she had him. She recorded him in, in little like 20, 30 second segments and then spliced it together and made a whole presentation of it. That's what kind of teacher she was. Um, what is her name? <laughs> You want you, you want to know? Well, we call her Miss Vero. I, I I don't feel comfortable like actually saying her full name on here, but Vero. Props to Miss Vero. Yeah, we call her Miss Vero. So yeah, she's awesome. And and unfortunately, my son's in sixth grade now, so he moved on to middle school and doesn't have her anymore. But he had her for a year and a half, and it was great. But you know, she taught him a lot of daily living skills, adaptive skills. You know how to cook. <laughs> making mac and cheese, you know, a lot of independence. He was going out to general ed. I feel like I'm getting off track a little bit, but <laughs> that's okay. Well, I think you're definitely talking as a parent how yeah. impactful it was for you to have a teacher that, right. number one, was really doing an awesome job with your child, but number two, was letting you know what they were doing and why they were doing it and the value right. of that. Yeah, so I think it's really important that we're they're all on the same page and that we're communicating. Definitely. And, and I think that that that's the that's the biggest thing. Establish that relationship just like you want to establish a relationship with a child, establish the rapport, same way you want to establish a rapport with the child and communicate and just make, you know, make it known we're on the same team. In your role as school psych, the school psychs I've worked with, part of what they do is diagnostic, right? Like they right, work yes. kids and they identify disabilities, do you feel like you're seeing any trends nationwide starting before COVID or maybe just mostly post-COVID? Are you seeing any trends of an increase or a rise on ADHD or autism spectrum or dyslexia? I know as an OT, dyslexia has been on the rise for about the last 10 plus years and dysgraphia, dyscalculia that go along with that. So what are you seeing? Yeah. So, I mean, Texas is a little bit different. In 2016, Houston Chronicle did a whole investigation hit piece on Texas Education Agency, and it's called Denied. And so, and and we're still dealing with the fallout of that. But basically, TEA had a cap of 8.5% of students can be in special education, whereas across the nation, it's more like 11% or 12% 
are right. higher. And yeah. so since that time have really, there's to make all in the feds have gotten involved department of education, you know, and, and right now, even our dis every district goes through a cyclical review every few years because of this. And, and our district's going through one this year. So anyway, we are evaluating more than ever to make up for that. But also with things like autism, there's just been more awareness. You know, we understand that it's a spectrum. So it's not just students that are nonverbal are exhibiting these, you know, obvious characteristics. But, you know, you, you see students that I know we're kind of phasing out of the term higher functioning. So I'll call them like more verbally fluent students that are in general education, but they still have, you know, significant social skill deficits and things like that. And we're also understanding that even if there is a child that's making A's or has 130 IQ, there may still be an educational need for an eligibility. So we're, we're understanding that as well. So we're, we're becoming more open and flexible about identifying these children and getting them help and getting them services and evaluated. You know, and I could think back probably to when I was a kid and you know, like I thinking like different friends I had, I'm like, I think they missed that one, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But stuff like that. But I mean, I mean, we've come a long way. And especially in ADHD, you do see more and more. So in Texas, we can't diagnose a student with ADHD at the school level. So it would fall under other health impairment. Right. Now, if they so they would need a, the doctor to fill out a physician's report saying they do have that diagnosis, but we still have to do our own evaluation to determine if there is a educational need, if there's a need for special education services. Otherwise, those children, and I don't like to call it a consolation prize, but, you know, can be served under 504, which is focusing more on accommodations rather than modifications. But yeah, so I, I think it's, a lot of it is just in, in increased awareness. And, and then in Texas, we are really just open to taking on more referrals. I mean, in our district, if there's a parent request, we don't question it. We just test. You know, right. it doesn't matter yeah. if the kids in all GT classes, we test. We don't now, we have the right to have a meeting with the parent, send them a notice of refusal and explain why we're not take, doing the evaluation, but we don't. Our district tests, you know, we're just, we take That's all. That's interesting. It. it was my understanding that that is a national mandate that if parents request. No, it's the mandate is you have 15 school days to have a meeting and it's just okay. to be different. And then basically it's an RTI, MTSS meeting. Uh-huh. And then you you determine, you, you just go through the data, talk about the concerns of the parents, how the child's functioning at school. And then the school can still send, give the parent a notice of refusal. And then they have to also give them procedural safeguard. And in the notice of refusal, we explain in detail why the evaluation is not, you know, being granted. Right. But yeah, but it, it doesn't matter because our district, we take all the parent requests anyway. So, so for me, it's a new point, but yeah. Well, and so, you, you threw out a couple terms right there. Let, let's just clarify. Uh, go back. Yeah. Know. RTI. Response to intervention. And MTSS. That is not a term we use. I see that more on my Instagram page that they call RTI MTSS. Yeah. So I'm going to be honest. I don't know what that stands for. I just know basically. Stands 
for New Mexico and Colorado use MTSS. Yeah. Multi-tiered systems of support. Okay, so there you go. It's, it's the equivalent of RTI. It's yeah. just laid out slightly differently. Yeah. And in RTI, there is sort of a burden of expectation on a lot of team members. And in MTSS, the burden lays more on the teacher to implement okay. modifications and accommodations. Okay. So that's the main difference. And I only know this because last year in the district I was in, I worked to train people on it. But it is something that I think is becoming a trend across the nation because of people who tried to get support and then didn't and felt like the RTI process wasn't, the the way that it moved wasn't timely to get right. kids what they needed. So some states have switched, some haven't, but they're very similar. I mean, so similar. So if yeah. you're in a state that uses RTI, you're not missing anything. It's just, it's, it's just slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, so, you know, when I'm making memes and stuff, I just like to know the acronyms and terms that other states use. You know, in Texas, we don't even say IEP meetings. We say ARD meetings, admission, review, dismissal. Um, so I have to be you know, aware of that when I'm on my page, not to say ARD, half people won't know what that is, you know, so, <laughs> um, but everyone knows what an IEP meeting is. So anyway, yeah, it's, I, there's there's definitely increased awareness, especially with autism. And I think that plays a role into seeing the, you know, the increase with identifying those disabilities. I know behaviors have been a big topic, big challenge now for I mean, it seems like the past several years, but I think especially, again, at the elementary level, the schools, in, in my experience, are doing a better job at finding these students, identifying them, providing the supports early, getting them started in the process early. Even in my district, what I like is all the school counselors are trained to do FBAs, functional behavioral assessments. And I preach that like, you know, not FBAs are not just for BCBAs, board certified behavior analysts or school psychologists. Anyone can do an FBA, you know, and so they do FBAs at the general education level when students are in that RTI process to help determine, you know, supports and interventions that will be effective. And so, and teachers are, you know, referring, you know, better about referring more immediately, you know, more prompt and timely manner too, especially when it's, when it's more urgent. And a lot of times they know that, you know, when I'm referring this kid, I, I think they're doing it for the kid's sake, because a lot of times it's not going to benefit them. You know, they're going to probably have the kid most of the year. So what we're setting up is probably for the next school year often, especially if you start a referral in the spring or something like that. Do you think you're seeing as well as, and I think it's a mix, like you said, of we're understanding sort of symptoms that students are putting out there and how to classify them to get them the supports they need, as well as maybe we're seeing more of some of those disabilities happening. So it's kind of hard to separate, but I think there are other different things that are impacting that, not just physical disability, including poverty and homelessness yes. and domestic violence and changing mm -hmm. in the parenting styles like we were talking about. So we're seeing some of those behaviors and the, the challenges with being able to focus 
or stay when you're in a classroom and the teacher is teaching, being able to absorb that. I mean, if you were homeless and had no place to sleep last night and you're exhausted, how are you going to get information, right? Are you also seeing that? I mean, I'm just curious if this is not just in my part of the world in the West, but if you're seeing it also in the central. It's all over. The previous district I worked in for 13 years is more of a low socioeconomic. Now I'm in a more middle class or some upper middle class too. So I don't see it as much in my current placement, but it's like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, those basic needs have to be met before learning occurs, you know, or like the capturing kids heart. You have to capture their heart. You have to build a relationship with them before the learning occurs. You you know, when you're dealing with issues. Also, I, I will say this. I was a trainer and for the nonviolent crisis intervention for 15 years. And we used it. So for an activity for precipitating factors, we used to pass around a Coke can. And so what would happen is I would start with the child leaving school in the afternoon to arriving at school the next morning and -hmm. talk about every stressor that that child experiences from the time they go home to the time they show up at school. And every time, every stressor I mentioned you know, whether it's getting yelled at, missing dinner, getting in a fight with siblings, you know, having tough time on home or anything, any little or big thing, shake the Coke can, right? And then so that child comes to school the next day and maybe he's oppositional, not listening, not following instructions. And so how are you going to approach that child? Because the way you may approach them is you're opening up that can and it's going to explode. <laughs> That that was a that's an activity that that really shows you know those those stressors those environmental stressors and factors how they affect a child at school and it's the same thing with us if we're going through a lot at home if there's a family you know we have a, a, a loved one that's sick or something like that you know that affects us at work too because our mind is partly at home so and also you know I missed the first podcast because half of my house flooded. <laughs> If you remember oh, that. Yeah. yeah. And so I, even me, I I haven't felt balanced. I've I felt, you know, off since that time until our house is fully restored to normal. It does seem to be kind of just leaving me a little bit unsettled, you know, affecting me because I, when, when I go home, you know, I'm going home to half of half of it's a construction project, you know, so, but yeah, I mean, so that's what these kids are going through, you know, that are, that are facing these type of challenges, you know, they may be off balance, they may be unsettled, they you know, may be anxious or I- anything like that. It's going to affect how they learn and how they're able to receive instruction. Well, and speaking of that and talking about some of the stressors that you've had, we're seeing a lot of teachers. And I think in the last three years, even we've seen a lot of teachers leaving education or making some shifts, which seems like potentially going to be leaving education. We see a lot of people on social media now that are growing really large followings and they're, they're saying some amazing things and it's creating such a cool culture among educators, being able to find other people that can commiserate with you and understand what's going on and offer support or suggestions. And that's wonderful. And some people are even like that group board teachers has been expanding into like (laughs) comedy shows and things, you know, just so much going on. 
how do you, how are you feeling the temperature is with the teachers that you work with? Are they getting tired? Are you getting tired as an educator? What do you, what do you think is going on there? Luckily in my district, I feel like they do receive a lot of support even before they get to me. But, you know, I would say historically it has been, there's been a lot of pressure on someone in my role to identify, get the referral started complete the evaluation, get the services going, come in with the magic wand (laughs) and change things. You know, there's been a lot of pressure. Our district has had also intervention counselors for several years, and I'm not trying to go off track, but we lost those positions because of funding issues. The Texas legislator did not pass a bill for education that during the legislative session every two years, and a funding bill was not passed. And the reason is school vouchers, because the Senate insisted that school vouchers be in there and the House doesn't want that and they couldn't come to an agreement. So I'm seeing how that's going to affect things. But I, I still feel like these students are, are heavily supported even before they get to the referral process, which is a good thing. I feel like in this district that I get fewer calls than I did in my previous one. They they tend to go toward people because I have five campuses I cover, so I'm not like a point person. And school sites in Texas, some of us, some of our roles may differ from school sites in other districts. I mean, in other states, sure. that we have educational diagnosticians. Have you heard of them? Yes. Okay, yes. so educational diagnosticians can test. They can basically do. The role of a school psych minus the psychological part. So testing for emotional disturbance, counseling, autism, you know, they don't do that, but they are facilitating IEP meetings depending on the district. They can test for specific learning disability, intellectual disability, things like that. So since some of that's taken off my plate, I can focus more on the psychological services side and also be spread out across more campuses. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Although five campuses seems like a lot, but it, I guess we're lot. doing a little less assessment. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not doing all the, yeah, and we're qualified to do all the assessment. And I, I did more of that in my previous district. How they utilize us is just going to depend on what district we're in. So it does give us more flexibility and options looking for jobs and things like that. But I don't want to go too far off track. So did I answer that question? Well, you also have an awesome social media site and you have yes. quite a few people following you and yes. checking in on what you're posting. What is some of your motivation in starting okay. that? So when I was an early career school psych and really for many years, I just felt alone. You know, you're going through these experiences, you're having these anxieties, you're having these negative thoughts, distorted thinking, imposter syndrome, all those things like that. One, One of the phrases that I love best on social media is I feel seen. So when I post something and someone replies in the comments, I feel seen. I love that, you know, because then you're, you know, the we are a community. We're all going through this. We're all struggling with this, you know, imposter syndrome or whatever it is, you're not alone. And I'll even post memes about the most random things like being stuck on, should I use the word exhibits or displays in the report and being stuck on that for like 20 minutes. And then (laughs) 
I'm like, I don't know how other people receive this. So I'll just post it and see. And then like, everyone's like, oh my gosh, I do the same thing. You know, they get stuck on this wording and things like that, you know? And, and then I, I, I posted memes about someone laying in bed and their eyes are open. It's two o'clock in the morning and they feel the need to go to their laptop and fix it. Part of the report that they didn't feel like they wrote correctly, you know, yeah. <laughs> we're all going through that. But so, yeah, it's just, it's, it's cool to see that we're all having these same experiences, the same, you know, type of struggles, but kind of in it together. And then also there are a lot of great pages that have awesome resources and things like that too. You know, I started in 2005, so, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of that, you know, and and there weren't things like the teachers pay teachers too, that you can go on and just really access and, and, and pay for these supports that don't cost very much. But then there's a lot of free resources too on social media, Instagram, Facebook, you know, maybe even TikTok. So yeah, it's really great for everyone to have that level of support. You know, sounds like you're using it to really build a community in a group of educators, school psychs, school counselors, maybe even diagnosticians that have felt very isolated and people may not know for those of us who do special services, we don't get to interact with like as an occupational therapist, I don't work with a whole lot of other OTs in the district because I'm, I'm the OT in the school I cover. So it does get very isolating and that's true for diagnosticians and school psychs and speech therapists and physical therapists. And so it's really nice to find ways to connect with other people so that you can ask those questions or put out those mm-hmm. things that you are like, what, what did you do for this? Or do you have, you know, have you had anything that worked really great for that? And because we do, we need resources. It's hard when we feel like we're an island out there by ourselves. Yeah. And then there's, a, you know, like the Facebook page called Supporting Schools, Texas School Sites. I think it was used to be called the LSSP Support Group. And then once we got the right to call ourselves that, it was something like Supporting Texas School Psychologists. But yeah, you can just go on there and, and post any question or concern or almost right away, people will start responding to it. And there's a, you know, an educational diagnostician support group for Texas. You can find a support group on Facebook for almost anything. And then there's also a lot of help and resources on Instagram as well. And yeah, it's amazing because I don't necessarily always have to call my supervisor or call a colleague. I can, I can go straight to social media and get the assistance, the help I need. I also want to just say that if you're in a district and there are multiple school sites in your district, so also build a community there, have a group text. I know people don't always like group text, but have a group text or an email group or, or, or something like make sure that you have colleagues that, you know, you can go to at any point. Yeah. For, for questions are just collaboration. So Well, and as a parent, you did mention to me that when you realized you needed to get some supports for your child, if you hadn't been a school psych, navigating the IEP system might have been very overwhelming for you. So in, in the backup, autism parents can be fierce, especially autism moms, you know, because my wife has no experience in that world. But she has she was able to secure him all the supports and re- services outside of public education. So like when he was diagnosed in, t- in 2012 or 13, there were not ABA centers on every corner like right. there are now. And but she found that 
You know, she she was able to get him those type of services and early interventions and things like that. But then once it got to the public education, it's like, okay, now it's me. But I'll just I'll just start with the most recent thing. I knew from being in the schools that the program he was in was too low for him. He 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 was moving beyond that. And so I really advocated fiercely for him to get in a higher level program. You know, I knew how to go about that and go through that process and work. So how with did his, you go about that? Work with his teacher to get, well, his teacher was on board. So his teacher wanted to make sure she had all the data to support it and that his goals supported it and his present levels of performance supported that so that we would be able to go to the IEP meeting and have something solid to back that up. If I weren't a school psychologist, I would come and just more speak from the heart or, you know, speak from, oh, what can he, this is what he's doing at home where I know they're going to want data, something concrete to show yeah. he can handle this higher level program, especially if there's some resistance to that. And then also there's just the fact that I'm a school psych and people feel a little more intimidated by it. So, you know, like, you know, it's just like one time the director or my director's like, you know, you can throw your weight around, you know, when it comes to advocating for your own kid. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> so. so you were going to, if you were going to coach a parent on what would be the very first step yeah. If they felt like their child needed something or if they already have an IEP. Yeah. They want Understanding the IEP. I mean, there's so many acronyms. It, it's like a legal doc. You know, it's a, it is a legal document. It can be so complex and confusing if you're not in that world. Now, I would reach out to the school or to the special education department and ask, are there any trainings available, like IEP trainings to understand the process, especially Especially if you have a child, say, that has an eligibility of autism, because then by law, we are required to do the autism supplement and the autism supplement includes parent training. So we have to, that has to be addressed. So really these, you know, the school district should be providing that training or offering it to parents um, to, to understand that IEP process and, and really go through it from beginning to end. And also, you know, when I'm in these meetings, I, I try not to talk over, <laughs> I'm not that bright where I talk over people all the time, but not to use like acronyms and things like that. Like, really right. make sense, you know, help them understand everything just is very clear and to the point. But yes, it's it's really, if you don't feel like you have that knowledge, it's the motivation and initiative to reach out and get that support and get that training. And if you're not getting the answers you want, keep going higher and higher until you get it because it's your right. You know, it's your right to understand the process. Absolutely. And you know, there's, there's region service centers, you know, so in Texas, you know, you have region one, the region, whatever. So you can reach out to, to them as well. We're, we are in region 11. So a parent can reach out to region 11 and get that type of support and training. And they offer that as well. So there are different options, but yeah, it's definitely, if you're not familiar with the process, then the schools, they can, they will just kind of do what they want or feel is best. And you're just kind of there like, okay, okay. (laughs) 
Um, So you really need to be an active member of the IEP meeting. And I've had a lot of parents who have, I I try really hard to befriend the parents that I'm working on their kid's case. And I know I've watched Shannon do the same thing just so that they feel comfortable talking to us and bringing concerns to us or successes, things that worked great at home and just having open communication because that's hard. I think it's a lot for parents to navigate the system and not every school not every district has the same level of support that you're talking about that you may have there in Texas. Right. Yeah. I mean, not, not every district in Texas may have that level of support, but it is a right that, I mean, it is a right, you know, especially when you're looking at the autism eligibility and the autism supplement, that support has to be provided. And then if you, like I said, if you're in Texas, there's region service centers too. Like there is that support. And unfortunately, parents may have to take the initiative to go find it. And I I think it's, that would be in any state. Don't don't take no for an answer if you're really wanting to understand that. And there's also organizations, ABA centers, things like that, that offer these trainings for parents too. So it's just kind of being aware of different organizations in the community and keeping an eye on what type of trainings they're offering too. Your special needs parent, get really involved in Facebook. And once you are Facebook in the disability community, you'll start figuring out what groups pertain to your area and you start to follow all the right pages and become aware of different trainings and supports. So just like school psychs, just like educators, parents need to use social media to their advantage too. I actually was in a parent group for this area. And once I started working for this district, I got off of it because it started to scare me. <laughs> like, Cause then I was like, Oh, I can see. Cause before when you had like angry parents, parents that were venting and stuff, but I didn't work for that district and didn't bother me. But now they're like venting about the district I work for. So I'm like, I got to get off. It's too much anxiety. <laughs> That is stressful for sure. Well, I I just really appreciate you sharing some of this great information with us and with listeners, because I think there are a lot of listeners that will benefit from it. Yeah, for sure. And so we are asking all of our interviewees a little bit about what you think the why is in education. So why do we educate? Why do we provide public education? So just what are your thoughts on that? That is a very broad question. Yeah, it is. (laughs) I, I think it has to start with that you have a passion for it, that you have a heart for it, that you care about student successes and outcomes and their well-being, them having a good educational experience and having every chance they can to be as independent and successful as an adult as possible, even though we may not, you know, most of us do not get to see a child from kindergarten to senior year and then see what happens after that. Sometimes school psychs are lucky enough to see it if they stay in one district long enough, but it's really trusting that you did everything for that child. You served that child well for a year and you're passing on baton from the next teacher and then, you know, so forth. But that's, that's the why to me is, is the outcome of the student. You know, what is going to happen when they graduate? My son, he's 13 on September in late September. So he's 12 right now, but Mm -hmm. You know, I'm looking at staring adulthood in the face, you know, like just five years down the line and he can be in 
public education, you know, he has the option until he's, you know, 21, but I'm just really focusing on independence with him. You know, I want him to be as independent as he possibly can when he's not in school anymore, because that will open up more job opportunities and just, he's always going to need lifelong support, but I want him to have as many opportunities as he can, as far as job placements and things like that. I even think about what, you know, will happen when I'm no longer around and I want him to be able to advocate for himself and be independent as much as possible. Yeah. So, so that's my goal is, and, and that's a goal for all students is that is the outcome them being successful once we're done with public education and whether that's a student who's, you know, nonverbal low IQ or a student who's a GT student, I, I want them to have the best outcome possible. I love that. I think those of us who are passionate educators that I think we agree on that, right? Yeah. Do you have anything else that you wanted to share with us today? You answered all the questions we had for you. Really grateful for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. No, I I think it's just a sense of humor, you know, like my page and levity is really important. It's okay to laugh, you know, (laughs) and, and, and we need that. So I try to provide that as much as I can. When you're looking at social media, there's different pages that provide different services, you know, like some was they're going to be more informative, more educational than mm-hmm. mine. Although I, I try to provide some of that, but I, I try to look at more of the humor, more of the experiences. And then there's some other people that provide more content that's related to the field, educational resources and things like that. So right. I think we're all using, you know, all of us <laughs> influencers are trying to use our, you know, we have different gifts and we're just trying to use it to better the field and, you know, our colleagues. And, and Definitely. As educators, we need to do that and we need to support our students and the families yes. that they go home to with being able to do that as well. Thank you for creating such a great community online. Yeah. I love your posts and I will continue to follow you and (laughs) laugh when I see those funny little memes that you put up. We appreciate your time so much. I hope that you have an excellent school year. And if we can do anything to be of service, if any questions or hot topics come up that we should know, you know how to reach us. So let us know. All right. Thank you. Well, that was a really nice interview to get to talk with Ryan, the world's okayest school psych on Instagram, and hear some of his perspective on as a parent and also as an educator. And I love that he talked a lot about the process and how parents can get what they need in that process. Yeah, I think everybody should follow him. What is his Instagram? It is at the world's okayest school psych. Nice. I like it. I love that. It's a funny funny name, but I love it. And I love that he also mentioned that some of the things happening in Texas, in the schools in Texas, are definitely related to political action or lack of action. And that is something that we all need to be paying close attention to, because if we're going to make changes in education, we're going to have to really look at the politics behind that. Knowing that so many teachers are struggling right now with being motivated and feeling like they can continue to teach. And we need those really good teachers. We need to be thinking about as citizens, how we can support them through good moves politically. I agree. Another great episode in the books. I don't even know what's coming up next week, but whatever it is going to be awesome. Together, Together, we we can can do do better. better. We'll see you guys next week. Don't miss out. Bye.